0: Well, with that, I want to have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As we began Matthew 5 last week, this morning we're going to consider what I've entitled Joy for the Helpless. We're beginning our journey through the Beatitudes of Christ, with which He opens the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to consider just verse 3 today, but to set the stage once again, let's read all of the Beatitudes together. We'll begin at the very beginning of chapter 5. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together for a moment. Our Father, what a glorious text given to us from the lips of the Son of God himself. This morning, Lord, as we consider what it means to be poor in spirit, I pray that that would be the outcome for us, that we are poor in spirit. As those who who belong to the kingdom of heaven, I pray that this text, Lord, would speak to us this morning, would change us and make us more like Christ, all for his glory, that his bride might be cleansed and pure. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we read this text right up front, I'd like you to notice that the order of the Beatitudes is not random, it's not accidental, there's a progression to these, at least a basic progression, and the basic progression goes something like this. The first few Beatitudes, first three or four, focus primarily on the heart, and the last few focus primarily on actions. That's not necessarily the main point of the Beatitudes, but it's a strong enough point that numerous New Testament scholars focus on that that progression, that the Beatitudes reflect a changed heart before God that leads to changed attitudes, which leads to changed actions. That is the very core of the idea of sanctification. And it's no coincidence that being poor in spirit must head up that list. It must come first. It's the beginning point for all followers of Christ. Why is that? Because there is and there will be no one in the kingdom, if I could use a double negative, who is not poor in the spirit. Who is not poor in spirit. No one in the kingdom of God is outside that category. The first four beatitudes, poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are lowly, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, these demonstrate that the gospel has two sides to it. The tearing down side of human pride and ability and the building up side, the raising up of the believer in Christ by grace. Or to put it this way, conviction must always come before conversion and the gospel condemns you before it frees you. There's always those two sides. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? We're going to look deeply into this, but for now, let me give you a very simple two-word definition. To be poor in spirit speaks of being spiritually helpless. It is to be spiritually helpless. And as we're taking the Beatitudes, the blessed are statements, we're taking them at face value as... Speaking of those qualities which cause a state of blessing. Remember, it's a, that we're recipients of divine favor. That's what it means to be blessed. And that itself is also a cause for joy. Already, what you're starting to see, if you're familiar with the Beatitudes at all, is the paradoxical nature of the Christian faith. Because true joy is only for the helpless. And from a human standpoint, that's a Paradox. Now you recall that we gave a simple definition for Christian joy. I'll repeat it one more time. Christian joy is a settled confidence. Christian joy is a settled confidence in the sovereignty of God. Christian joy is a settled confidence in the sovereignty of God which transcends situational happiness. Christian joy is a settled confidence in the sovereignty of God which transcends situational happiness. So what is the interaction between joy The settled confidence, the quality of being blessed, and spiritual helplessness, being poor in spirit. How do those work together? Well, I'd like to try to unpack that, and I'd like to simplify this and give you three sources of joy for the spiritually helpless, three sources of joy for the spiritually helpless. The first one we'll call the joy of helpless glorification, the joy of helpless glorification, Glorification speaks of the fact that someday God will glorify you. He will give you a new body. He will give you an eternal sinless dwelling with him. That is coming for the believer. That is guaranteed. This is the reason that the poor in spirit are blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is your possession right now. You you have this thing. I'd like to start here at the reason for the blessing, the joy, the reason for this of the poor in spirit, because the main focus I'd like to really look at this morning is is the idea of being poor in spirit. I want to make sure that's the final concept you take with you today. So we'll start here in this joy of helpless glorification. The key question here is, what does Jesus mean by the kingdom of heaven? What does that mean? The kingdom of heaven is synonymous not so much with the location, but with the owner. The kingdom of heaven is a synonym for the kingdom of God or the kingdom which belongs to God. The kingdom is in heaven, but it's coming to earth. We're told to to pray for that. And as we said in our introductory message to the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom, which is the topic, the theme, the focus of the Gospel of Matthew... That is a very specific reference to the coming earthly reign of Messiah on this planet. That's the topic that saturates the Gospel of Matthew. It's not some ethereal, invisible, internal kingdom. That's a small piece of the puzzle. But the kingdom is talking about an actual kingdom. Where the Son of the living God is on this earth. And to the spiritually poor, they're heirs of the very kingdom of heaven which will come down to earth. The kingdom which belongs to heaven, which belongs to God, which is his alone. You as a believer in Christ, you do belong to the kingdom of heaven. But of course, the benefits are only partial at the moment. Those who are to inherit the kingdom of heaven are called blessed now because of the certainty of that coming inheritance. That's why you're blessed now. Peter described this in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. The reason this inheritance is defined as a kingdom is because, and this is not a work of genius here, there's a king there are kingdom citizens, and there's a land. Those are the three things you have to have to have a kingdom. And so the Gospel of Matthew is speaking clearly of the future eschatological kingdom, not an esoteric, theoretical, merely internal kingdom reality. but the real kingdom, with a real king, with all the glorious accoutrements of life on an earth ruled by a perfect, all-loving, all-powerful king. And I would note this too, the amillennial position on the kingdom, that the physical existence of a future Jewish kingdom, that that's not going to happen. The amillennial position tends to spiritualize the material blessings, the the real actual things in the coming kingdom, and as somehow being more spiritual and more, more upright. But the Beatitudes here they show us anything they show us that we're not compelled to choose between spiritual blessings and physical blessings that's a that's a purely man-made human distinction spiritual blessings go with physical blessings and the other way around the kingdom is a physical earthly kingdom notice verse 5 they shall inherit the what earth and it is accompanied by grand spiritual blessings as a result of the presence of christ on earth and Our future perfected resurrection selves living and serving in the kingdom. It's it's glorious. It's earth as it was meant to be. It's earth as Eden once was. Now, to the average Jew, this would be a shocking statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why would this be shocking to them? Because to the average Jew in Jesus' day, they generally looked at only the promised Physical blessings. If amillennialism only looks at spiritual blessings, the Jew in Jesus' day only looked at the physical blessings. They looked forward to a future time on earth when Messiah would reign. But what was shocking to them to hear this was that they believed that they would be part of the kingdom because their DNA proved they were Jewish. And Jesus says, no, only the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's new information. Why is there joy for the poor in spirit? Because you receive kingdom benefits now and you receive kingdom benefits later. You receive them now according to Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, present tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Everything you need. There's no second work of grace needed. You don't need, quote unquote, more of the Holy Spirit. You don't need some experience. You don't need this. You don't need that. The moment you came to faith in Christ, you have everything you need. Everything. The word of God, the people of God. Everything. And you have blessings coming later. Why else would Jesus tell us to pray in Matthew 6? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can you imagine an earth where God's will is always done by everyone? Boy, elections would turn out way differently, wouldn't they? <laughs> Why would we call this helpless glorification? Seems like an oxymoron, a, a contradiction in terms. Let me ask you a question to answer that question. What precisely did you do to receive this blessing? Nothing. Nothing. And only the spiritually helpless will receive the kingdom of heaven. Our first source of joy for the spiritually helpless, the joy of helpless glorification. I want to camp a little longer on the second source of joy, the joy of helpless salvation. The joy of helpless salvation. I want to speak to the issue of salvation from sin in Christ that's a major part of the Beatitudes. Now we were as as clear as possible in our introduction last week to the Sermon on the Mount that we reject the popular view that the Sermon on the Mount is a list of things to do in order to gain the favor of God. That's a works-based salvation. We reject that. But we also walk the fine line that the Beatitudes address both salvation and the obedient life in Christ. Many of the Beatitudes describe the gracious gifts of God, since God is the initiator of all things having to do with salvation. These character traits of the genuinely repentant but they also outline qualities to be pursued, to be cultivated in the process of you, your growing in the knowledge of Christ, growing in Christ-likeness, growing in sanctification. If I could put it this way, the Beatitudes examine the whole life of the believer in Christ. From initial salvation all the way to final reward in heaven and everything in between. And so the qualities of being poor in spirit, being those who mourn, those who are lowly, those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, These represent the state of the soul given by God for salvation and the qualities to be pursued and treasured and valued after salvation. That's the the heavenly genius of these Beatitudes. To help us understand the joy of helpless salvation, I want to divide those thoughts further into three other parts. I'm going to give you first a basic description of spiritual poverty. I'm going to give you a detailed description of spiritual poverty I'm going to answer the question, how do you know? I'm going to give you a litmus test for spiritual poverty. How do you know that you possess it? A basic description, a detailed description, and a litmus test. Let me start with a basic description of spiritual poverty. To be poor in spirit, spiritual helplessness speaks of authentic spirituality, It's authentic spirituality that God doesn't approve of and he's not impressed by anyone who boasts in their spiritual splendor, in their spiritual value, that I'm somehow bringing something to God. Instead, the truly repentant person is admitting, I am completely spiritually impoverished, I have nothing. Spiritual poverty admits a total lack of any righteousness, of any Genuine spiritual value to offer God. There's no gift, there's no talent, there's no promise that you can make to God. He wants nothing from you, He needs nothing from you. Spiritual poverty means that all righteousness must come from Christ and from Christ alone. None of it comes from you. There's no goodness in you to entice God somehow to receive you into His family. Spiritual poverty imagines the position of a beggar. The destitute person who held out his cup and hoped for a few coins from those passing by him. Beggars found themselves in total dependence on others. Very often in biblical times, physically incapacitated. Or if I could put it this way, you are beggarly in spirit. You're beggarly in spirit. This describes someone who's acutely and completely and totally and utterly and 100% aware that only the grace of God gives salvation. There's no self-sufficiency, there's no self-reliance, no self-righteousness, there's no value you brought to heaven, you, know, you, you brought no value to God. That's the only person who may be saved. There's no one else. It describes spiritual bankruptcy, spiritual destitution. That's a basic description of spiritual poverty. Second, let me give you a detailed description of spiritual poverty. And to accomplish this, I'm going to use primarily the Old Testament... Which uses a, a specific Hebrew word that approximates the Greek equivalent to being poor in spirit. I'm going to give you a list of theological descriptors or descriptions of spiritual poverty using the Old Testament. So here's just some, some descriptors. The first one, desperate need. Desperate need. Isaiah 29 19. The afflicted, that's the Hebrew word that, that approximates being poor in spirit. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in Yahweh and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Now this word afflicted or poor can mean physically or financially destitute, but, but spiritually it always goes far beyond that. This doesn't just mean that the financially or physically destitute are going to receive the favor of God. That, that would mean that earthly suffering is somehow a gateway to heaven. And that's not Christianity, that's Hinduism. So it can't mean that. The afflicted approximates the idea of spiritual poverty and it means to be bowed down. It means to be humbled. Not in the sense of I feel like humbling myself, but in the sense of you have no choice. Your face is in the dirt. You can't get up. You are humbled. You're emaciated. You're helpless. You're spiritually paralyzed. Desperate need. There's another theological description. I'm going to do eight of them total. The second one, complete brokenness. Complete brokenness. Isaiah 61, verse 1 gives the words of Messiah hundreds of years before He came to earth. Isaiah 61, 1, The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news, here's the word again, to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners. I want to focus for a moment on the word Brokenhearted. It literally means to be shattered into more pieces than can be put back together again. It's shattered. It's just made into dust. And by the way, I want you to notice this here. The messianic prophecy fulfilled in Christ, the good news of the gospel is to the afflicted, to the shattered, not to the one who says, I don't need salvation. How did Jesus put this? He said he came to call sinners, not the righteous, meaning not the self-righteous. Mark 2, chapter, verse 17, he says that. In other words, those who believe they have no need of God's forgiveness cannot receive salvation for the simple reason that they don't think they need it. They don't think they need it. Desperate need, complete brokenness. There's a third descriptor, requesting mercy. Requesting mercy. Psalm 10, verse 12. The psalmist writes, Arise, O Yahweh, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. There's that word again. Spiritual poverty may ask for mercy. Spiritual poverty may ask for grace. Spiritual poverty may ask for help. This is the opposite of the the spiritually proud person who secretly harbors the idea that God does accept me or God should accept me because of my inherent worth to Him. You know, it's very difficult for any human being to say, I literally have nothing to offer God. Most people want to say, yeah, I know I make mistakes and missteps and I have problems and I'm working on it and things like that, but there are parts of me that I think God would really benefit from. That's our default position, isn't it? That person cannot be saved. Spiritual poverty requests mercy because that's the only way to be accepted by God. Here's a fourth descriptor. Understanding godliness understanding godliness psalm 25 verse 9 says may he lead the humble in justice, and may he teach the humble his way the spiritually proud can't possibly comprehend the ways of god pride and spiritual comprehension those two cannot go together they can't exist together this is why paul said in first corinthians chapter two a natural man does not accept the the depths of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. Only the one with poverty in spirit can understand godliness. How about this descriptor? Kingdom qualification. Kingdom qualification, Psalm 37:11, but the lowly will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant peace. The lowly will inherit the land. Does that sound familiar? Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. The self-deceived person looks at all the poor slobs who are members of churches, all those with the crutch of Jesus, all of those following Christ and secretly thinks himself a little bit better, a little bit more deserving. But spiritual poverty is required to be qualified for the kingdom. There's a sixth descriptor, eternal separation. separation. Eternal separation. Psalm 147.6 says, Yahweh helps up the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. The afflicted. That's that word again. That means those who are bowed down spiritually. And I want you to notice the, the contrasting parallelism here. The opposite of the spiritually afflicted is the wicked. Those who retain the recalcitrant pride. And, and notice this. There's coming a great separation. The afflicted go up to God. And the wicked are pressed down to death and to destruction and to judgment. There's a seventh descriptor. Future exaltation. Future exaltation. Psalm 149.4 says, For Yahweh takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. The poor in spirit will be beautified. It's a Hebrew word that means to glorify with adornment. To decorate to to enhance to embellish. That the poor in spirit will be exalted in the kingdom as important kingdom citizens. I'll never forget hearing the sermon as a as a child and having the preacher say, "I want you to picture the the weirdest, oddest, most difficult, lowest." most lowly person you know in the church, maybe the one with, with a mental handicap, maybe one who looks funny, maybe one who talks funny, maybe one who has no social skills, maybe one who's just that one weirdo that every church seems to have. I want you to picture that person. And I'm sitting there going, well, I got a bunch of my mind, you know. I'm... <laughs> and then he said, if you saw that person in His glorified state, you would probably make the mistake of falling down to worship. That's what's coming for all of us. One more descriptor. If you take nothing away, take this one. Trembling fear. Trembling fear. Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 1, Thus says Yahweh, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Spiritual poverty is a trembling fear at the word of God such that you are contrite. It's a word that means broken and crippled and struck down. Trembling fear. I think that's a concept we have lost in American evangelicalism. It's trembling fear. Desperate need, complete brokenness, requesting mercy, understanding godliness, kingdom qualification, eternal separation, future exaltation, trembling fear. That is spiritual poverty. That's the theology of spiritual poverty. We've done the basic description, the detailed description, but now the big question I want to give you a litmus test for spiritual poverty because the big question is, well, how do I know? How do I know? Being poor in spirit, poverty of spirit at its core, it means, it speaks of a person's attitude toward himself. A poverty of self, a denying of self because of perceiving spiritual debt. And here's the litmus test of believing yourself to be spiritually worthless worthlessness. That's the sinner's reality. And right now, somebody might be saying, worthless? That's a little harsh. That's a pretty strong word. I mean, yesterday, I I made a meal that my whole family said was awesome. I I made a lot of money yesterday. I did this, I did that. I, I know that I have spiritual lack, but worthless? Yes, worthless. It's a Greek word used in the New Testament that means to be rendered useless. To be disabled, to be totally depraved, spiritually handicapped, spiritually debilitated, to be perverse, to be corrupted, to be totally without good. And this particular word is the exact word the Apostle Paul chose to use to describe the lost. In Romans 3, beginning in verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And someone might say, well, maybe Paul was just having a bad day when he he was giving that quote in Romans 3. No, he was giving a quote. It was a quote from God in Psalm 14, verse 3. They have all turned aside altogether. They have become worthless. You get nailed in Greek and Hebrew on this one. And of course, this idea of spiritual worthlessness is absolutely hated by the world. The world teaches humanity to worship itself. Being poor in spirit, that idea is despised by the world. It's hated by the world. It's scoffed at by the world. And yet it is the requirement for being included in the kingdom of God. It's the requirement. Poor in spirit depicts you as coming face to face with God and feeling the complete other total lack and insufficiency in your soul. It's the response of the great prophet Isaiah when he was faced with the revealed glory of God in Isaiah 6. And he cried out, Woe is me for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. That's poverty of spirit. That just seeing God says, I'm nothing, I'm dead, I'm a dead man. So how do you know? You know because you believe with all of your heart in your own spiritual worthlessness. Because of what worth is a rebellious sinner to a holy God for all eternity? There is no worth to that person. All of everything, I don't know if I can make it bigger, all of everything is devoted to one overriding principle, the glory of God. And a rebellious sinner refuses to give God glory, therefore he is worthless. But if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, now your worth is found in God. Now your worth is given to you because you become more and more like Christ and and God sees you and He sees Christ as now being the same. Can you believe that? That you are given the imputed, the credited righteousness of Christ and so your worth now is that you will be completely, utterly like Jesus Christ and you are right now being made more and more like Him. Your worth is only growing in God. Now you have worth because you contribute to the whole point of all, of everything, the glory of God. That's what makes you have worth because you contribute to His glory. By the way, just a slight theological note, the lost who reject God forever will also contribute to His glory in that they will glorify His justice and His wrath for all eternity. Now, you might still be having trouble believing that there's literally nothing in you to attract God. Consider the great apostle Paul. Paul warned the Philippians to beware of anyone promoting the false gospel that puts any confidence in the flesh, any confidence in any self-righteousness or any good works. And he he asserted that if anyone, if anyone could have been justified by God on the basis of having something to offer God on the basis of good works, they would have been him. Paul said this in Philippians three, although I myself might have confidence, even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. He said, "Of all the men living on Earth at this moment, I am the greatest lawkeeper that's ever been. So, if anyone had that right to say I can brag, it would be him. But how does he regard all that? How does he picture all that?" Philippians three seven and eight. He continues, "But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Not just that they're not worth they're they're worth nothing, but that they're worth less than nothing. It's a loss." More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Here it is. And count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The English translation rubbish is very kind. It means manure, dung, the contents of a septic tank. What you flushed this morning. Everything that Paul had is that. Now why is that so arrogant? If you believe you have anything to offer God, you're arrogantly saying, here, God, here's this big pile of dung I have to offer you to show you how wonderful I am. No wonder God hates so-called good works. It is manure to Him. Because you're saying, I can undo all my sins by doing nice things. And that's an affront to His justice. This very first beatitude places this smack dab at the very heart of the gospel message immediately because it disqualifies every person who thinks they have anything whatsoever to offer God. You have nothing to offer Him except sin. Jesus told a simple story to clearly illustrate the difference between the spiritually proud and the spiritually poor. Two men went up into the temple to pray. This is in Luke 18. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, why would we call this the joy of helpless salvation? The joy of helpless salvation becomes clearer. I've proven to you from Scripture that you have nothing to offer God. You have no, no power in yourself. Nothing. Nothing can save you. And you must believe this in order to be saved. But here's the joy. Ephesians 2.5 tells us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The joy is that it's purely and solely the love of God that chose you for salvation. Or if I could put it this way, it's the love of God that gave you the poverty of spirit in the first place. It was the Spirit of God that took away your pride and opened your eyes to be shocked at your own depravity. He opened your eyes to see your worthlessness. He gave you the gift of faith so that you might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the worth, receive the imputed righteousness that is the gift of God. If you're truly poor in spirit, do you understand that you can't even take credit for that? Well, I'm very poor in spirit. That's great. Now you're not. (laughs) Even your poverty of spirit had to be given you and logic tells you that that's true. That's a glorious truth and that is an endless source of joy that everything that I supposedly brought to God, faith, poverty of spirit, desperate need, repentance, he gave it to me first. There's a third source of joy for the spiritually helpless, the joy of helpless mortification. The joy of helpless mortification. I know that's an old-fashioned word. Mortification is a once-common word in the Christian vocabulary. To mortify something means to take it down, to degrade it, to crush it. It's related to a word for death. It's to kill something. I'm speaking very specifically now to the follower of Christ, to the one who has come to saving faith who has been poor in spirit. I'm concerned that the joy of helpless mortification has eluded us culturally in the church. Not being mortified, not being one who lives in poverty of spirit. This is the cause of every single family problem in the church. It's the cause of every marital problem in the church. It's the cause of all conflict in the church. It's the cause of all leadership problems in the church. It's the cause of all broken friendships in the body of Christ. Helpless mortification describes the poor in spirit Christian who knows he's helpless in his own power to demonstrate the humility of heart and mind that is characteristic of the believer in Christ. Remember, the Beatitudes address the whole life of the believer from salvation all the way to reward and all the living of the Christian life in between. And in this regard, being poor in spirit is the quality of the saved person who is engaged in kingdom living, to living out the gospel. That everything of value that you are and that you offer and that you have, spiritually speaking, it was all given to you. Even the abilities you use for the kingdom and for the gospel are called in what? Spiritual gifts. This is a good antidote to pride, to remember the state you were in when God saved you. Now, to be clear, to be poor in spirit as a Christian doesn't mean being nervous, doesn't mean being weak, doesn't mean being cowardly, it doesn't mean false humility when someone is is self-effacing continually in order to tell everybody how humble he is. That's not being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit concerns your view of yourself when you compare your view of God. That's what poor in spirit is to the Christian. In fact, this is very well expressed in Isaiah 57, verse 15. This comparison. For thus says the one high and lifted up who dwells forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the crushed and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. How does God describe himself? High and lifted up he lives forever his name is holy he dwells on a high and holy place and how does he describe you crushed lowly of spirit lowly crushed in spirit to think about peter peter wasn't nervous peter was a naturally aggressive guy he was an assertive leader of men he didn't lack self-confidence he was chosen by Jesus Christ to be the initial leader of the entire early church to lead all the apostles. And yet, when he was confronted with the sheer holiness and majesty and might and power of Christ as demonstrated in a miracle, Luke 5.8 says that Peter fell down at Jesus' knees saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When he compared himself to God, he had poverty of spirit. Or think about Paul, greatest missionary in church history, writer of half of our New Testament books, tremendous communicator, tremendous preacher, obviously an incredible writer, planter of many, many churches. He was bold, he was aggressive for the gospel, and yet he wrote to the Corinthian church reminding them of how he had been when he was among them. He said in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Or how about Jesus himself? God in the flesh, yet totally dependent upon the instructions he received from his heavenly Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. John 5.30, Jesus said, I can do nothing from myself. John 14.10, he said, The words I say to you, I do not speak from myself, but the Father abiding in me does his works. The prayer life of Jesus alone demonstrated his other dependence on God, on his Father as he walked the roads of this earth. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit as a believer in Christ? It means complete absence of pride, of self-assurance, of self-reliance. It means a great ease in confessing sin, a great ease in hearing uh, correction. It means acknowledging that you're nothing in the presence of God. There's nothing you can produce, nothing you can do in your own power. And since God, theologically speaking, is all-powerful, this means He alone possesses all true power and all ability, and all strength, and all confidence, and all, all, all everything that is, has to do with power. Theologically, if God is all-powerful, anything you have is always His. Any power, any ability, any gift, any strength, it is His in the first place. And He's loaning it to you. That's it. David Martin Lloyd-Jones described being poor in spirit as this tremendous awareness of our other nothingness as we come face to face with God. Now, once again, the obvious question is, how do I strive to be poor in spirit? And I'd like to spend some time on this because I think this is one of the keys to being a great local church. I want to give you four strategies, four strategies to be poor in spirit. And I want to be upfront with you. This is not a buffet approach where you pick the ones you like. All four of these go together. It's either all or nothing. You must do all of them. And as your shepherd who is called by God to warn and admonish and see Christ formed in you, I'm urging you to take this ultra seriously. The church of Jesus Christ is anemic and weak when it comes to lowliness and meekness and humility and poverty of spirit. And it shows in our families, it shows in our marriages, it shows in our, in our churches. You know what we wouldn't have to do any more of If we were lowly in spirit, counseling. Because everything that happens to you is okay with you because you believe in the sovereignty of God. And anybody you're mad at, they probably have a good reason because you're less a person than they are if you're obeying Philippians 2. Four strategies. First, set a time for honest self-evaluation. Set a time for honest self-evaluation. This might take more than one time. What I mean by this is making notes. I'm not talking about just thinking for a minute right now. Yep, I'm poor in spirit. I'm talking about leaving here today and putting this on your calendar, or better yet, this afternoon, to obey Haggai 1 verse 5. Haggai 1 verse 5, God commanded the returned exiles from Babylon to self-evaluate. He said, so now, thus says Yahweh of hosts, set your heart to consider your ways. Set your heart to consider your ways, Psalm one nineteen fifty nine. I thought upon my ways, and I turned to turn my feet to your testimony. And as you're sitting with your notebook or journal or iPad or whatever you want to use, begin to ask yourself questions and take notes. Questions like, "Is there any part of me, when I think of being in the presence of God, that feels just a little bit deserving? Is there any part of me that feels a lot deserving?" Is there any part of me that truly in the core of my heart believes I'm slightly more special than someone else? You say, well, I'd never think that. I would say our actions say otherwise. There's more questions to ask yourself. Do I struggle with being frustrated and impatient with others? Do I consistently demonstrate a sharp tongue with people around me? Do I struggle with wanting to have my way? Do I have tantrums of any sort? Either the outward obvious ones, outbursts of anger, or, or the, the less obvious ones that some people call being passive-aggressive, that's still aggressive, it's just quiet. Do I avoid dealing with real relationship issues? It, it is my solution to avoid it and not think about it. Do I have trouble getting along with others or working well with others? Or when you're in kindergarten, doesn't play well with others? Does my spouse or do my children or do my friends and fellow believers have to walk on the proverbial eggshells around me because I set up a dynamic of total self-protection and oversensitivity to everything? Do I inconvenience everyone around me for my own convenience? Do I make the whole world adjust to me all the time? Am I constantly nitpicking and evaluating others in my mind? And let me just say this right up front. These things are not some sort of personality problem. This is not a style problem. this is not that that's just the way I made problem. This is a poverty of spirit problem. This is a humility problem. There's a second strategy. It goes with the first one. The second strategy is change your mind about the ways you are not poor in spirit. Change your mind about the ways you are not poor in spirit. Now, this isn't what you think it means. By change your mind, I don't mean to have an intellectual disagreement with yourself. I don't mean saying, yep, I disagree with those attitudes and actions and showing pride and not showing a lowliness of heart. No, by changing your mind, I mean the act of changing your mind and changing the way you think. How do you do that? With serious and repeated meditation on appropriate scripture. For example, you might in your evaluation, self-evaluation... Say, yes, I struggle almost every day with making others inconvenienced to protect my little world or to make certain I'm always well served. So how do you change your mind about that? You begin to meditate seriously and repeatedly. For example, on Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus. And what do I mean by meditation? It's a very biblical idea. It means to bite, to chew, to swallow. Write them, memorize them, contemplate these verses. Resolve that every day for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, you're going to carry these with you in your heart, in your mind, in your wallet, in your purse, on your hand, whatever you have to do. Or maybe you have written down in your self-evaluation, yes, I struggle with dealing with real relationship issues. I struggle with this. Then you meditate on and seriously and repeatedly go to the scriptures. For example, Psalm 27 6, or Proverbs 27 6, rather, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Romans 12.14, bless those who persecute you persecute you, bless and do not curse romans twelve sixteen do not be haughty in mind romans twelve eighteen so far, it depends on you being at peace with all men romans twelve twenty if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head matthew eighteen fifteen if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother, and on the other hand, be judicious and consider first peter four eight above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Take those verses and weave them into your heart and in your mind. Put them on your mirror. Put them on your, on your desk everywhere you can. Make it to where you can't turn around without running into these. Change the way you think. This goes beyond reading the Bible verse and going, yeah, I should do that. I wonder what's on right now. Change your mind by elevating your mind to a biblical framework to combat that sinful thinking. Here's a third strategy. Repeatedly repent in prayer of not being poor in spirit. Repeatedly repent in prayer of not being poor in spirit. I don't mean to gain salvation. That's yours already. I mean to gain a daily joy in the Lord. And be specific using the self-evaluation in the last step. Get to your knees and repent. Get to the Word and repent. We pray for poverty of spirit among all of our people here at Grace and we demand and require poverty of spirit among all of our leaders. It is a requirement. Lack of poverty of spirit has no place in leading God's people. If spiritual poverty and humility and lowliness aren't a regular part of your devotional life, your, your thought life, the very definition of yourself, then you're almost certainly demonstrating hurtful pride in some relationship or in some responsibility. Let me put it this way. I think this is easy to remember. Poverty of spirit is the paint that you use to color the days you live for the Lord. Poverty of spirit is the paint that you use to color the days that you live for the Lord. And one more strategy goes with the other three. A fourth strategy. Intentionally draw your mind to the glory of God. Intentionally draw your mind to the glory of God. The way to be in poor in spirit is not merely a constant focus on self, that, that's half the picture. That's less than half of the picture. No, you move toward the splendor of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God. There's two simple questions you could ask yourself. The first one happens while you're reading the Bible. How does this text point to the glory of God? How does this text point to the greatness of God, to the majesty of God? Why is that question so important? Because asking yourself that question every time you open your Bible, it gets your mind in the habit of thinking in the terms of God's glory. And the second question you ask, while contemplating the ways you're not poor in spirit, what attitude or word or action would in fact give God glory instead of what I just did or in what I, instead of what I normally do? So read the passage of Scripture. How does this glorify God? Examine your own life. What could I do that does glorify God? Why this strategy of intentionally drawing your mind to the glory of God? Because when you're in the habit of filtering your thinking through the glory of God, you know what happens to you? You shrink by comparison, as it should be. You'll see your own helplessness, and now, now the doorway to joy is open. Why why is that? Because spending your days in self-evaluation instead of evaluating everybody else, that's a pathway to joy. Spending your days carving away at the sinful tendencies which contradict poverty of spirit, that's a pathway to joy. Repenting in prayer is most definitely a pathway to joy. And certainly disciplining your mind to consider and filter everything through the glory of God is a pathway to joy. Listen, this whole idea of poverty of spirit, this is contrary to the casual American evangelical yearning for sentimental comfort, for some pithy quote or saying or sermonette that will create a temporary ooh or ah, and and, and you want some sort of feeling. Well, you want joy, real joy? Be poor in spirit and aggressively go after it. Remember what John the Baptist said when comparing himself to Jesus Christ? John the Baptist, by the way, identified by Jesus himself in Matthew 11 as the greatest man who had ever lived. But John the Baptist when comparing himself to Jesus publicly said in John 3:30, "He must increase and I must what? Decrease." And that's exactly what happened. When John was arrested and imprisoned, John who had limited information, he believed that Jesus the Messiah was the true king of Israel and was bringing the earthly kingdom of Messiah. Now at this moment, he had a moment of doubt, a moment of wondering. And he sent word to Jesus asking if Jesus truly was the Messiah or if he should be waiting on someone else. And Jesus sent back a message to John. It wasn't, hey, name it and claim it and you'll get out of prison. It wasn't, hey, John, hang in there. It wasn't, I'm praying for you. It's, it wasn't, the Lord has a wonderful plan for your life. No, the focus was completely on the authenticity of Jesus as Messiah and notice one of the authenticating factors. Jesus answered and said to him, said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor, meaning the poor in spirit, have the gospel preached to them. Jesus expected of John that that would give him so much joy that's all he needed to know that this was truly Messiah. That is an all God and nothing of me response. John would die shortly in prison. Beheaded as a party favor for a wicked woman. But the comfort Jesus gave John wasn't sentiment. It wasn't emotion. Rather it was the knowledge that the king of all the kings is increasing. And will continue to increase. That the poor in spirit. Are receiving the gospel. And that was enough for John. To go to his fate. With peace. And with joy. Can I put it this way? A good church. And there's lots of good churches. A good church believes the gospel. Loves the word of God. And is sound in doctrine and practice. But a great church. Believes the the gospel, loves the word of God, is sound in doctrine and practice, and is led by leaders and filled with people who are poor in spirit. That makes for a great church. That makes for an effective church. And by the way, you know what you have to lose by being poor in spirit? Nothing. Because you are nothing, you have nothing, you can lose nothing. You have nothing to lose. And we would join the, the hymn writer In saying, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If you are nothing, you can lose nothing. But the irony is, if you are nothing, God will give you everything. He'll give you everything. Our Father, we thank you for this ironic truth that it takes the Spirit of God for us to understand. It takes an open Bible. It takes a, a mind that has been opened by the Spirit of God to believe that to be saved, we must be poor in spirit, and to be effective Christians, we must continue as those with poverty of spirit. And so, Lord, we ask you this day, first on behalf of those who have not bent the knee in humility before Christ that you would give them the gift of being poor in spirit of being shocked at their own depravity and allow them lord the privilege of come to come running to the cross and to kneel down and to bow down before a great and mighty god who is loving and kind and forgiving to all who will repent and for our church as a whole we with all the humility we can muster lord we ask you to make us a great church not because of our programs, not because of things we can be proud of, but because we are filled with people and led by leaders who believe with all of their heart that they are nothing before God, that nothing in our hands we bring simply to your cross do we cling. Lord, as we come to the Lord's table now, I pray it is with sobriety of heart and seriousness of spirit in remembrance of mind that we would consider the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ by which we are saved and by which all the glorious promises of inheriting the kingdom of heaven come true for us. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.